You're listening to the Digital Void Podcast, a weekly exploration of digital culture, media, technology, and memes, featuring critical conversations with experts at the forefront of our digital moment. My name is Josh Chapdelaine, and my co-host is Dr. Jamie Cohen. How can we create a healthier and more inclusive internet? It's a question that we grapple with daily at Digital Void. When abuse, harassment, disinformation, media consolidation, platform ownership, and surveillance are at the forefront of headlines and conversations about the internet, it can be hard to find space to imagine and create more equitable, inclusive, and safe spaces on the net. It's why we reached out to today's guest. On today's episode, Jamie and I had the privilege to speak with Bridget Todd. Bridget is the creator and host of the award-winning podcast, There Are No Girls on the Internet, and the director of communications at Ultraviolet. She got her start teaching courses on writing and social change at Howard University, trained human rights activists in Australia, and coordinated digital strategy for activist causes and organizations. You may have met Bridget at one of our previous events in Washington, D.C. or Brooklyn this year, where she hosted live editions of her podcast. On today's episode, we explore Bridget's earliest research into toxic online communities and the characteristics and features of equitable digital spaces. Plus, we look at how Elon Musk's potential Twitter purchase could reshape the internet at a pivotal moment in international and domestic affairs, and where people can go to find community online in spaces away from mainstream, public-facing social media platforms. Bridget's activism and work are truly inspirational, and I hope you find this conversation as motivating as we did. Before we begin, please take time to subscribe and leave a review for the Digital Void podcast on your favorite podcast platform now. Here's this week's conversation. So Bridget, thank you so much for coming and joining Jamie and I on the Digital Void podcast. It's so great to see you again. Oh, I'm so excited to be here. It's been too long since we last connected, so I'm thrilled to reconnect. Yeah, we are too. Uh, Hosting you in DC for our connected future was a joy. And then again in Brooklyn in May, I believe. And yeah, I, I really haven't and Jamie hasn't. We haven't had the opportunity to explore your work, your career, your activism, and the super important work you're doing to help improve online communities and digital ecosystems. And it's a topic I've really wanted to dive into with you for a long time now. So nearly a decade ago, you wrote a piece for The Atlantic titled, Does Anything Go? The Rise and Fall of a Racist Corner of Reddit, which detailed how Reddit's content moderators were struggling to deal with racist communities on the platform. You've been such an important and incredible advocate for a healthier internet for a long time, which is why Jamie and I are so glad to be chatting with you today, uh, two days after Elon Musk announced plans to officially purchase Twitter. We'll get to Musk in a bit, but first, can you tell us about your journey to become an activist and educator for communities both on the ground and digitally? Yeah, of course. I have to I have to say like I'm like what a blast from the past. That that Atlantic piece was my first real byline. I feel like um do you know that music journalist Nardwar who pulls out people's it's like, oh, here's an album you made 15 years ago. And the person's like, wow, where did you find this? I feel a bit like that. Um, yeah, that that piece, I think it, it it's interesting to start there because, you know, my, the, my interest in a healthier internet ecosystem and building an internet that is sustainable and healthy and 
really works for more marginalized people is really personal. You know, I grew up a, a, a you know, weird kid in a pretty small town in the South in Virginia. And, you know, I grew up feeling pretty isolated from my community. And so I kind of would go to bed at night and think, are there other people out there like me? I feel so strange. I feel so weird. And it was the internet that really helped me see that I wasn't alone, helped me see that there were other people like me out there in the world. And I always say that, you know, when my parents brought me home this like boxy gray monstrosity desktop computer and set it up in our computer room, uh, it was like they had come home with like a pair of wings. Like it really set me free and set me on this path of self-discovery, of self-actualization, of really understanding what the world, the possibilities of the world outside of my small town in the South and where I might fit into it. And so had I not been able to have those experiences early on, I don't know where I would be today. And I fear that the the generations coming behind us are not being able to have the, the kinds of experiences that were so transformative for me. Obviously, you know, the internet, I'm sure I was up to things I shouldn't have been up to on AOL chat rooms back then. But, you know, it, 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 the internet did not feel like a marketplace for painful experiences and negativity. And I feel like I'm not so sure that I can say that today for, for the generation who is coming of age, um, behind me. So, what are the shifts that you've noticed from your time as a child on the internet to the ecosystem that we're in today? And how can digital platforms begin to retrieve some of the values that were most closely associated with healthy spaces? Oof, what a good question. You know, I, I don't want to pretend like like I was coming of age on the internet in, I guess it would have been the, nine, the, the late 90s. I don't want to pretend like that was this you know, perfect utopia online, because it certainly was not. Some of the uglier things that we combat today on the internet were certainly there as well. But I think it was money. I think it was this idea. I think back then we had this idea, wrongly or rightly, that the internet was going to be this democratizing force where you any everyone could show up as their full selves and sort of, you know, your identity didn't matter. You could be whoever you wanted. And I certainly bought into that as, as, a, as a young person online. And I think really, as we started to see internet platforms become more tied to economic forces, and so wanting to have the, the most amount of users and having that be the thing that drives you because you want more revenue, having, thing, having revenue be the bottom line and the end-all be-all of every online experience, I think for me is, is what I see very differently, right? And so I think that when platforms are thinking about things like scale and revenue as the most important thing, it makes it so hard to prioritize then experiences like care or joy or thoughtfulness or connection. To me, those things, not necessarily, but certainly in the internet landscape that we have today, those things seem to be at odds. Right. Because how can you care about someone else when you open TikTok and the FYP is trying to help find a tragically murdered woman or online vigilantism or really charged political discourse, dis and misinformation running rampant. So a bit of a personal question here, but how do you primarily experience the internet? Are you spending most of your time on social media platforms or do you veer more toward encrypted apps, community-based software services like Discord, email? How do you try to match your values and hopes for an internet with your own experience? 
Ooh, I love this question. It's really it's really evolved over the years. I think that I was big into spaces like like open online spaces in the like I would say like 2014. Like if you were a black person on black Twitter in 2014 and something popped off, that was the place to be, right? And so I definitely back in those days, I was just on social media apps, acting a fool, making jokes, all of that. These days, I feel like that is so not a part of my my own online experience. And most of the places that I'm really showing up are closed groups, right? And so super niche Discord groups or super niche Facebook communities, closed Facebook communities where we're all organizing around one super nerdy thing. Like those are the places where I'm really showing up the most. And I have to say... I think for me personally, gone are the days where I feel comfortable really bringing a lot of myself to an open platform like a Twitter, just because it doesn't, not even that it doesn't feel safe. It doesn't feel, how can I even put it? It's the the, the potential cost isn't worth it. Like I feel like I've made a, a, what is it? A cost benefit analysis and the potential benefit from any kind of connection or engagement or community I might get from that kind of experience just isn't worth the the downfalls that I know are inherent in a platform that is open like Twitter, you know? So I just, I, it's so rare, like, it's rare that I post anything on an open social media network that is like truly, truly about my real life. Do you feel like the new generation coming into the web now is, has lost that transition period where it was from what we had as web and connections and making and AOL aim and chat all the way up now through just four websites that they visit only. And now they're like leaving the computer entirely, like be real and discord things that are like discord while it shares that, but they're really moving toward a non web presence. Do, do they, do you feel like that, that consolidation and the private privatization, does that threaten the value or like the conflict of the values of the people, like the, the teens or the younger generation or just in general, now how are they going to find community the way we used to? Yeah, it's a great question. I will say the ability for young people to find connection despite all the barriers that society or systems or economic forces or tech overlords, despite all those barriers that might be in their way, young people will find a way to find that connection. So I'm like very confident in that. But that said, I guess I hope that they are carving out places to have these kinds of digital experiences that I did. But I and I, I guess I can't, I'm not a young person. I haven't been for a while, but I can't speak to whether or not they are doing that. But I, I wonder, like, are they experiencing the thrill of discovering a super weird website online? Like, I, again, I'm, I'm dating myself a bit here, but you know, what's the what's the young person today's equivalent of like a Homestar Runner or, a, you know, like remember all those weird websites on the internet where when we were coming up that were just delightfully freaking weird and we didn't really know what the origin story was or why they existed at all, but you and your friends definitely quoted it all the time. Like, wh- like what is their Homestar Runner, you know? Yeah, I found um, a, a book recently of 1999's best designed websites and I was like, well, this ever even make sense to is this like a thing that is treated as value as anything else now everything looks the exact same structure it's a feed pictures you know use it or you don't you know and it seems like that's something that lost in like the diversity that could be out there and then and as like dr andre brock jr brings up like it elides an entire history of creators that like just couldn't have the market value or, or 
or VCs to invest in some of these unique projects. Yes. And I would say yes. And so I am fascinated by that, but also the ways that that is translated into our real world. Like I've been seeing a lot of creators making content about the fact that if you go to coffee shops today, they usually have that same kind of visual aesthetic. And that aesthetic is meant specifically to photograph well on social media. If you take a picture of it on Instagram, it's going to look great, but it's going to look like every other coffee shop in a, you know, an urban environment. And like, so we're kind of losing this, this diversity of experiences on the internet and in real life because of the internet. Because Back at, back before Instagram was so ubiquitous, you would go into a cozy coffee shop and it might not it might not look so good on Instagram, might not photograph well, but the experience of being there, you know, all kinds of crap on the walls, overstuffed chairs, like, you know, a bathroom key attached to a plank of wood, all this weird stuff, that might not look great on the gram, but the experience of being there was really interesting. And so I I, I worry that both were losing that diversity of experience in the online world, but offline as well, because of online experiences. And you do such amazing work platforming voices that have historically been marginalized from the net. And this was an underlying assumption of the net. The name of your amazing podcast is There Are No Girls on the Internet, right? Can you speak to the title of your podcast and where that assumption comes from? And also some of the work you're doing to help create a diverse representative uh, platform for folks to discuss the topics and internet of about internet culture um, and bring voice to these stories. Oh, well, first of all, thank you for the compliment. That means so much coming from you all because I'm such a big fan. Um, yeah, I so the title, people always ask about the title, There Are No Girls on the Internet. And, you know, it, it's kind of an unwritten rule of the internet that I think has two different meanings that are both BS in my book. One is that if you're ever talking to somebody on the internet and they say they're a woman, they're actually lying. They're a man pretending to be a woman. Um, that is definitely like an underlying assumption of the internet. And then another interpretation of the phrase, there are no girls on the internet, is that on the internet, your identity doesn't really matter. And so the internet is this democratizing space where women are treated the same as men, people of color are treated the same as white people. Your identity doesn't matter. Both of those things are not true. And what's interesting is that I believed them for a very long time. I believed that as somebody who came of age on the internet, that I was a bit of an outlier, that there weren't really marginalized people on the internet. And if we were there, we were on the margins, on the outskirts. And in, and so I, when I first heard the podcast, I approached it from that, from that kind of guiding assumption that I had incorrect. And it was interviewing the internet historian, Claire Evans, who is the um, very first guest on the podcast. And she has this great book chronicling the ways that women and other marginalized people were at the forefront of the internet and technology and had always actually been there. And so I had to really do a kind of internal recalibration of like, well, why, why was I so quick to believe that, you know, this this story that we tell ourselves that the internet is a white boys club and that women, people of color, queer folks, trans folks, they we're trying to push our way into this boys club. That's a convenient story, but it's actually not true. The reality is we have been there all along. We have been at the forefront of every internet and technological movement that has ever existed. And if you didn't hear our stories or our voices, it's not because we, wasn't, we weren't there. It's because those voices were overlooked, erased, marginalized, intentionally sidelined, and all of that. And so I really wanted my podcast to be a, a platform where that wasn't the case, where 
almost every voice you hear from is a voice from somebody who is traditionally marginalized, whether they're a person of color, whether they're a queer person or a trans person, whether they're you know, a non-native English speaker or a sex worker or um, someone who is working class. All of these identities have really shaped what it means for us to show up online. And we, we deserve monuments to the ways that people who have been traditionally marginalized and historically underrepresented really have shaped what it means to be on the internet today because we've always been there. Yeah, you have been there and the voices and the representation is so important. And right now, it, we're at a pivotal moment in the internet and how we experience and use the internet as we see media consolidation, social media consolidation specifically, and perhaps privatization. Elon Musk announced plans to purchase Twitter for $54 a share uh, just a day or two ago. And that threatens a lot of an already rampant platform for mis and disinformation, but it perhaps threatens the values of a lot more folks. So what does it mean for uh, an incredibly wealthy billionaire whose values are those of Elon Musk and his associated cult following uh, to take over such a dominant social media platform? What are the implications of this for everyone that is not uh, an ardent fan of Elon Musk? Yeah, what a, what a sad, weird state of affairs we're in. I, I would say, first of all, just the fact that a billionaire could almost on a whim as a lark buy one of our largest telecommunications platforms, one that is so so clearly linked to things like our democracy, our elections. They could just buy that on a whim. That is really the first indication that I think something is really, really wrong with our 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 political and and digital landscape and ecosystem and culture. So that's one. Uh, two, I think that. I am pretty concerned about a Twitter that is owned by Elon Musk because I think we've already have a lot of indications about how he would run such a platform, right? Back when the conversations around him buying Twitter first were surfaced, one of the first things he did was use his massive platform to attack a prominent woman of color who worked at Twitter, whose job is to do some of the work to create safer experiences on Twitter. To me, that signals pretty clearly how someone like Elon Musk would be uh, at the helm of Twitter. You know, I think we saw people like the Proud Boys and, and people who are affiliated with white supremacy rejoicing, saying, oh, I can't wait to, go, to get back on the platform. It's going to be a, a, you know, a misgendering palooza now that that's probably going to be allowed again. And so, you know, I, I think somebody like Elon Musk being at the helm of Twitter would really op potentially open the floodgates to Things like harassment, dis and misinformation running rampant, hate speech, uh, online abuse. And I think it's just clear that those things are disproportionately things that target people who are traditionally marginalized. And so I, I think something that really, I think, gets missed in the conversation sometimes is that Twitter really owes a debt to specifically Black, its Black users, right? Like, I don't know what Twitter would be if not for Black Twitter, if not for Black folks on the platform you know, creating conversations and keeping it popping and relevant. And so I, I really worry that all of that largely unpaid labor and creativity and talent and joy that really made Twitter a, an interesting place to be, I feel like I worry that our contributions are so easily overlooked and cast aside when it comes to 
the, the, the inner workings of how things go at Twitter. I guess I'll, I guess I'll put it that way. Right. And feeling safe on a platform, feeling like you can belong to community without fear of either surveillance or harassment or marginalization is really, really important. And so many people have dedicated so much time to the platform, building community, building friends. And where do people go if they suddenly don't feel safe? It's kind of like they have a, someone that just walked in the room and is imposing a new set of rules. And there's no clear other place because of the way the internet is now structured. Yeah. I So I get this question a lot. Like, are people going to start mass deleting and, and mass exodusing from Twitter? I don't know. I think it remains to be seen. I, I think if you are someone who it's the idea of staying on a platform that might be overrun by, I don't know if I can swear on this podcast. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was going to say shitheads, you know, Pe- people who are, yeah, people who are just like clearly not interested in thoughtful discourse with you. I don't begrudge anybody who was like, I don't have the, the mental or emotional capacity to deal with that and I'm leaving. However, I will say like, marginalized people online shouldn't have to be put in situations where we have to make those kinds of choices. We deserve for our largest telecommunications platforms to be places where we can show up safely and we shouldn't have to make those kinds of decisions. There's, um, there's something you said before about Black Twitter and as a culture, there's something important there that could be lost that's fragile. Like they're, they're, The way we archive this kind of content too is important because it is a cultural artifact of a of a community that is uniquely it's called black twitter so it's on twitter so elon's views are openly my, myopic we we know what he sees we know how much he values the market value and the idea not the reality of free speech and what his inability to process bigger cultural uh, aspects like that I, I my my fear is beyond the communities leaving or having an exodus from the platform, and more along the lines of there's no way to keep an archive of that that culture. Like there's, it seems like since it's digital ephemerality is like so situated within this app, and somebody's so careless trying to adopt it. How do you see that type of preservation work happening in the future? Like, is anybody going to be able to lead that into like? To, to do a crazy throwback to like Black Planet back in like 99, 2000, you know, there is, you can't just make an, because Twitter is an entity, it can't have a new one, but is there a cultural preservation process that could happen from an activist standpoint? Yeah. Oh God, I love this question. I would say, I, th- I mean, this is going to sound, str- I think it's up to the weirdos, like you and me. I think yeah. it's up to people <laughs> who, you know, are, obsessive about documentation and preservation and archival of things that a lot of people might not see as worthy of archival, right? It's one, it's one of the things, I, I know that Digital Void is doing a great job of this. It's one of the things I try to do on my podcast so that, you know, no one can say that we didn't have a a big contribution to Twitter, a big contribution to, you know, the, what it felt like to be on Twitter. I don't want anyone to be able to say like, oh, well, Twitter was just like, white people at Elon Musk, like, no, we were there. We made it pop in. We made, we were a big part of why anybody wanted to be there. And I, I think it's, it's through, it's going to take some sort of intentional archival and preservation of that reality to make sure that it doesn't get lost because our contributions are so easily lost, especially when you add in the fact that, as you said, Jamie, like the internet is, is ephemeral, like it is by design difficult to preserve. And so it, I think it's going to take real intention by 
obsessive internet weirdos <laughs> like us and maybe some of the folks listening. Yeah. Well, that's that's what we try to inspire too. And that's why we appreciate your work too. It, is, it offers voices that need more context. Twitter's limitations by its text are also limiting in culture. And that's a part of what makes the language of it, of it work. But it also like my, the bigger fear is like being the reproducing a violent past. Like Elon might bring back like the idea of chasing people off, not people leaving by exodus, Mm -hmm. but like that is a, that's a, people misunderstand that like digital violence is violence and they don't get that these things aren't like a lot of people are like, oh, what's the harm in like making fun or what's the problem with replies? Just ignore it. And it's not that. It's a perpetuation of a long history of this. How, how are people able to, how are we as people who are in this field and educators and so forth, how can we do better explaining this to, to other people? Oh, I have such a good question. I mean, I just yesterday I published an episode with um, this cultural critic, Kimberly Foster, who early, I think last month she tweeted something about Nicki Minaj and she was overrun with threats and doxing and people who would say like, oh, this is just, you know, pop culture. If she doesn't like it, just, you know, turn off her Twitter. People were talking, people had her address. People were threatening to show up at her niece's school. Like that's not the internet. That is real world. And so I think, first of all, it's really reframing how we talk about it. Um, I often use the word online harassment when I'm describing this, but I was at a panel recently and somebody used the phrase online violence. And I was like, or oh, online abuse. And I was like, oh, that really, it, it's that small change in language, I think makes clear that we're not talking about something that just is happening on the internet or happening online, that it has such, such real world implications offline as well. And um, something that you said about Elon Musk, sort of what kind of what Twitter would be like under Elon Musk. Something that I I just have to include is, as you all know, there are so many brilliant people who have dedicated so much of their life and their time and their their field of study trying to figure out how you moderate platforms like Mm -hmm. Twitter, right? Like that is a and I'm often in these spaces where it's smart people who know what they're talking about who still don't agree on one way to do it. To see Elon Musk just wander in and be like, ooh, I'll just, you know, have there be no moderation, as if people haven't already tried that, as if that <laughs> hasn't been, like, tried and discarded a zillion other times. We're not dealing with someone who is, like, it's just really difficult and frustrating to watch someone who clearly doesn't know how out of their own element they are. Like, like I... I have been in this space for a while and I am out of my element, right? Like I would never pers- be like, oh, I know exactly the the right answer. Watching Elon Musk be like, oh, I've never done this before, but I've got it. It's so frustrating. <laughs> I agreed. Yeah, we've tried V1. It would be remarkably worse. Like not even, not even <laughs> closely the same. You're right. Yeah. Version one was that. Like it's, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> it was that. And oh, to, I hate to bring up this topic, but... I want to, you, you brought up online harassment I, I, and it's, it's a shame because these are online harassment machines and your work, especially at with ultraviolet and more broadly with everything that you do is so focused on digital activism and education. And you try to change the world by flooding the zone, not in the Steve Bannon way with this and misinformation, but as antidotes to <laughs> or elixirs to the ongoing epistemological crisis that we're facing. And to me, when I mention digital activism to people, I feel like a lot of people kind of 
groan at that term, right? They're like, oh, they think about, especially during like the Trump years, Twitter users like the Krasenstein brothers who were just like the reply guys and or or like the grifty occupied Democrats cringe retweet system. <laughs> or you they bring up like the and I know the Krasensteins are a throwback, but but on the other side of the fence, um, you have people like Chelsea Miller who uh, helped uh, co-found uh, Freedom March NYC, who provided some serious commentary about uh, the Instagram blackout in the summer of 2020, who said that important amp- voices needed to be amplified, and those voices were actually not able to be amplified because of the blackout campaign. So what is your approach to online activism, both at Ultraviolet and more broadly, and how can people come to understand how activism and digital activism can manifest change in real life in meaningful ways? Yeah, what a good question. Also, what a throwback. I kind of forgot about how, like, of all the horrible things that Trump was responsible for, it really gave way to a generation of resistance i don't want to use the word grifters but you know what i mean like like the the resistance economy that was pretty uh, specific i guess i'll say we know what you're talking about yeah. <laughs> yeah 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 what a weird time also everybody just got so annoying on twitter it was like people who would have just been tweeting memes all of a sudden started being like here's a thread one out of 200 and you're like oh my god like <laughs> yeah uh, i i would say you know for for me, and I think as as an approach at Ultraviolet, I we really think of it as sort of a ladder of engagement, right? So if you're someone who is interested in making your voice heard, interested in taking some sort of action, you might not really know where to start, and that's fine. Everybody has to start somewhere, and so if if you take some sort of low bar online action, you're going to be much more likely to then like continue up that that ladder of engagement. So maybe first it's you know, signing an online petition. Maybe then you're sharing it. Maybe then you're sharing it with five friends. Maybe then you're starting your own petition. Maybe then you're having a house party at your house. Maybe next you're getting arrested to protest, you know, abortion laws or something. Like, like it, I think that online activism kind of gets this bad, bad rap as sort of just, oh, I'm just posting with a hashtag or whatever. But I think if, if done meaningfully, it can really make an impact. And it, and especially in terms of like helping people, helping walk people along that ladder of engagement. So they're taking the more meaningful action at the top of the ladder, even if it starts with something online. So what are some actions? You said petitions, but is there a bridge to signing a petition to then seeing a real life policy change? What are some of the examples that you've actually worked on that you've seen the impact of a digital community manifesting in the real world? Oh, I can give you a, a great example from pretty recently. Um, TikTok announced that they were gonna they were gonna change their um, policy so that misgendering and dead naming were now um, against their terms of service, and that was because of the on mostly online activism of ultraviolet members. Uh, uh, we worked with Glad worked with Glad on that, and so um, I think that was largely online and digital activism, but that had a very specific change. And I could give you so many more examples for the last 10 years of times when just someone taking an online action was enough to create a real meaningful in real, in real life impact. Um, another one that comes to mind is 
It was that one of the jurors from the Zimmerman trial was going to get a splashy book deal. And almost overnight, I think it was um, the digital activist April Rain created a a petition and almost overnight that that deal was scrapped. Right. And so um, online activism, I could give you so many examples of times where people just online saying, no, this is not cool, had a real world impact. Yeah, that goes way beyond responding, boom, to a Trump tweet about Robert Mueller or something like that, right? Yes. Yeah. Oh, my God. Oh, what, 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 a, what a terrible thing <laughs> that, like, Trump, Trump did so much harm, and that was just another one of them. Like, now you have to see terrible replies and every tweet. Like, come on. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm happy you brought up TikTok because I really want to focus a little on the platform because over the last several years, TikTok has become the primary platform for youth culture to create, remix, and share content. It operates differently from Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter because content feeds content. Remixes are encouraged, and we've seen how this system pushes trends into the mainstream almost instantly, from Couch Guy last year to this summer's Amber Heard and Johnny Depp trials. How can you, or rather, how can people and collectives approach platforms with an activist ethos when it feels like activists are always responding to or catching up with trends rather than getting ahead of harmful harassment and outrage cycles? Oh, God. I mean, I, I, I feel like it's something I'm still working out. You know, I, I love TikTok. And I think the reason why I really like TikTok is the reason why it can be both a powerful force for change and good, and also a powerful force for harm because stuff can take off so quickly. You mentioned Amber Heard. I was a pretty like low information observer of the Depp Heard trial. I didn't really know what was going on. And because of that, I was largely getting my information about the trial from TikTok. And from that information, I gleaned, wow, this is, this seems like it, it like, it must be a complicated case. Like he said, she said, what's really going on? I don't know. And I kind of labored with this until I did more research. And then I was like, actually, that's not what's going on at all. I've been given a really, I've been really misled by the overwhelming amount of content on the platform, making me think that either A, Amber Heard was obviously lying, or B, maybe this was a too complicated of an issue to tell. When you look into it, you're like, actually, no, that doesn't seem to be what's going on at all. And so the way that platforms like TikTok can be used to really deeply mislead someone. Even me, like I think of myself as a pretty like digitally savvy person, but I was for sure clearly misled in that in that situation and kind of had to play a little bit of catch up. And so all of that is to say, I think really digital creators and digital activists need to be super clear about how they are using a platform like TikTok to get ahead of that, right? So like you don't want to be playing catch up and you don't want to be sort of trying to correct the record after the fact. And I feel like using the Amber Heard example, I feel like we are only now just catching up and sort of correcting the record. But in the beginning, it was just, you would have thought that it was, it was just overwhelmingly negative anti-Amber Heard sentiments. And that it's, it's very easy to give anyone the impression that like, A, that is the truth. And B, that everyone overwhelmingly feels that way when I actually don't think that's the case. There was a social media driven top down uh, situation that occurred from that too that fit the mold of previous events where people were going on becoming Team Johnny and Team Amber. And that team mentality was obviously rewarded by the remix culture on TikTok. So the platform itself, while, while trust and safety and content moderation on TikTok are doing really great, they are still encouraging the teammate 
competition mentality that feeds into that. So when we're talking about issues as deep as like a nuance, it's not even that nuance. That story wasn't even nuanced, but it was like the way that the story was told help people lean into one team or the other. And I found myself diffusing it in real life multiple times. If I brought the subject up in person in my classes, people would be, literally be like, oh, I'm on team Johnny. I'm on team Amber. And I was like, no, there's no teams here. You, they don't like you. They don't know you. You know, this has nothing to do with that. So they, but the, what they're doing is leaning into the reward system that came from that. How do we dispel that? How do we use humanity again to say, you know, these, this, the system is rewarding the platform, not rewarding you. Oh, that, that's such a good point. And I definitely saw the same thing. You, you, you put it much better than I was attempting to put it earlier. But I think that there's an entire economy of people who are gamifying that team mentality that you just talked about. And they're, 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 getting, they're like getting material profit from it. And algorithms like TikToks reward that. They reward that tribalism. And I think that we really should be expecting our platforms to be places where thoughtfulness, honesty, accuracy, and nuance reign and not tribalism, not black and white interpretations, not extremism. You know, when I say extremism, I don't mean, you know, Nazis, although that too, you know, not extremist thinking or like polarized thinking, but our platform should be places where people can have conversations like the one that you're trying to have in your classroom, where we talk about the what's actually happening in ways that are not just, you know, oh, I'm team John or team Amber, because we're talking about something that's very serious, domestic violence. And we're talking about people who I assume none of us know personally, right? And so being team whoever, it, it completely conflates a pretty serious issue. And so I think we have to expect our platforms. And when I say our platforms, I think that we should be demanding that our platforms change their algorithms such that thoughtful, honest content is rewarded. And people I'm not people should people should be able to make that kind of content if that's what they're making, but it shouldn't be rewarded. It shouldn't be amplified by algorithms and platforms. It should it should exist, sure. Like I'm not saying people should I mean, I wouldn't make it, but I'm not saying people shouldn't make it. But it certainly should not be rewarded, incentivized, monetized, and all of that. Because that's clearly not good for our collective understanding of issues that are already complex. You just started to answer a question that I was about to ask. And I am so excited about that. Because <laughs> I have three more personal questions for you to round out this conversation. And it's about your uh, future vision for the internet. Because at your ethos is really inspiring because you do work on a national level with ultraviolet as well as with there are no girls on the internet, but you will also dabble in a lot of different subjects and topics from people who are working with responsible AI or trying to create uh, different, uh, more human centered AI as you worked with your project for Mozilla's IRL as a host this season, as well as a uh, local hosting, right? Because you're the co-host of CityCast DC, which is super inspiring. So you kind of live nationally and locally. So with someone who is as well-versed in all things internet, what is your vision for a more equitable internet on a five to 10 year scale? Ooh, I would say, so first and foremost, this is going to sound cheesy, but I want an internet that is built by the people who use it. You know, that you mentioned that Mozilla project and shout out to Mozilla because that was a dream project for me to work on. I've, I've been a Mozilla fangirl for most of my life. And so that was an exciting project to get to work on. But one of the things that I really learned from that project as a takeaway is how much of our 
technology and our internet is built by and decisions are made by people who just are not like the people that are impacted by those decisions and who actually use it, right? And so the Mozilla podcast IRL, they chronicled some of the ways that people are trying to take back some of that power. And so you have people who are were former um, like Uber Eats drivers and delivery drivers and, and app workers and gig workers who are trying to take back some of that da- that data so that they can make better decisions about how their work is done, as opposed to it being this like by definition, extractive process where tech overlords are making decisions for people they will never meet and are not at all like. And so I would say first and foremost, I would like to see more of the people who are impacted having the power and making the decisions. Um, That's one. You know, I think that it's not surprising to me that when you have majority white cis men building platforms who are then also not the ones who are experiencing the majority of the harm that the platforms that they build are responsible for. That's a problem. And so I think one big step would be to have more voices, more inclusion in the rooms where decisions get made about technology. Did you see the Mark Andreessen thread that came out like last night? He basically said that reporters have been asking a lot about him and he wants to get ahead of it to explain what he's been doing lately. And it's like, okay, the guy that developed the Netscape browser and made the internet commercial in public goes and says that he decided to live in California and and he's not, sh- and everyone isn't sure why the roads are decaying, but they are slowly. And it's like living in the fall of Rome. And it's like, dude, you have a libertarian ethos and you can't figure out what's wrong with the roads. Really? You have no idea. They say this stuff without a draw, a hint of irony or like self-awareness. It's <laughs> it's always something like that. It's so frustrating to watch, but it's such a, such a good example of exactly what I'm talking about, where there's this intellectual removal that happens where these people are so removed from the lived experiences of people like you and me that they'll say these things and it's like, be for real, dude. Like, just like, like, be for real. <laughs> yeah. Like, all right, you took the web public, you have billions of dollars <laughs> and you're saying that the only thing you do is sit in your room, take it more investor meetings than you can handle and read books. Okay. You should be the one designing the internet. You've convinced me. Right. Well, that's, that's like even like Scott Galloway's everyone, anon- anonymity should go away. Oh, and it was God. like, well, no. Like, how is that even helpful? So sometimes the the myopia, this includes Elon, is so much like the world is just the people in their dinner parties. And like they they can't really see that there's so many different perspectives and voices that that are out there. So it is it's it's work. We have a lot of work to do. Yeah. And I mean, not to get too gossipy, but did y'all read that piece where they had published um, Elon Musk's text? Oh, yeah. And it's just, it's just like <laughs> sycophant bonanza where it's like, oh, great idea. Oh, wow. I've never mm-hmm. read anything so smart. Oh, my God. So great. Like, <laughs> I'm so thankful that I don't live in a bubble where everything that comes out of my mouth, the people around me are just like, oh, smartest thing I've ever heard. And I can imagine what that does to you as a decision maker or a thinker, because it, it cre- yeah, it does create that myop, that myopic way of thinking where you don't know what you don't know and you're not curious to find out. Like it's, it's a lack of curiosity for me that I think is really troubling. So what are some of the first steps people can take today? You mentioned the Uber drivers working to claim more data, right? But if I'm a listener of this podcast or a big fan of There Are No Girls on the internet. What can I start to do today to help contribute to this if I'm not already working in this space? If I'm just a casual user? Yeah, I love this question. So first, this is going to sound a little bit like 
pie in the sky, hippy dippy. But this is my personal experience is really thinking about how the role that the internet and technology plays in your own life, in your own head, in your own house. To be clear, tech leaders, I believe, have dropped the ball full stop, and this is their responsibility. But while in absence of their leadership, we can all take some steps today to make to kind of create the kind of internet that we want to see, right? And so for me, that looks like setting timers on my TikTok so that I hopefully don't spend more than an hour scrolling. Or if I see a tweet that really gets under my skin, reminding myself to slow down, you know, asking myself if I really want to reply to it, if I'm if I'm just going to be giving it more power by replying to it. And if is it something that I really think that more people need to see? And if not, why would I be engaging with it, right? And so that takes a little bit of intention, a little bit of it's almost like a meditative practice, how I try to use the internet. When I see pylons, even if I have a really good dunk, I ask myself, if I'm going to be the thousandth person to reply to this, am I really adding to the conversation? Is, is this really part, is this the kind of a conversation that I would like to see? And so I try to remember my own individual part in creating the internet ecosystem that I would like to be a part of, which is not always easy. And it is a constant practice. <laughs> You're doing great, though. I mean, seriously, and you're inspiring others. So that brings us to our last question, which is who or what is currently inspiring you? Oh, uh, well, you all, your work is very inspiring at Digital Void. I was so excited to be plugged into it. That's one. Um, Two, I would say young people. Uh, I am constantly in awe of young people. They are being given such hard circumstances, and yet they are still using the internet to make change, to make art, to make creative stuff that I, the likes of which I would never think to do. Um, so shout out to them. And I would also say, you know, the membership at Ultraviolet, um, if you go to feministnet.org, we are actively working on a campaign to build a feminist internet and we would never be able to do that without our membership. And so I, I would say like any t- anywhere where people are being given the least and given the worst, but still figuring out how to make it something for themselves, that is inspiring. And I think folks are using the internet to do that every day. And it's just fantastic to get to tell those stories. You are so inspiring to both Jamie and I. Thank you so much for your incredible work, continued activism, education, outreach, everything you do. So thank you for taking the time to chat with us today. Bridget, this has been a delight. Oh, the pleasure has been all mine. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks again to Bridget Todd for joining us on the Digital Void podcast. You can keep up with Bridget on social media via the links in the show notes and subscribe to her wonderful podcast, There Are No Girls on the Internet, on your favorite podcast provider. Thanks for joining us. And so we might say this is an experience of the void.